Today's episode of Women of the Hour is brought to you by Blue Apron. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Some of the meals available in January, seared pork chops with farro and cranberry chutney, spaghetti squash and marinara with mushrooms and garlic knots, spicy shrimp and Korean rice cakes with cabbage and furukake. cake? There's no way I got that right. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash women. This is actually a way to support the show. And if you're excited about the range of feminist voices that we've been bringing to you, we would so appreciate if you would check out uh, blueapron.com slash women. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So do not wait. That's blueapron.com slash women. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. I love music. Do you? I listen to it. I play it for friends. I use it in my TV show. It helps me write. And sometimes I just dance around the bathroom to a hot jam or two. I've always been obsessed with music by women. Whether it was my trip to the first Lilith Fair in fifth grade, whether it was my passion for Tracy Chapman and the jukebox musical I wrote using her tunes in college, as yet unproduced, or whether it's my commitment to sharing the work of interesting female artists on the soundtrack to girls, music, particularly music by women, is a hugely important part of my life. But like so many industries, the music industry is still unashamedly male, and it really challenges its female artists to maintain and hold on to their perspective. The music industry so often commodifies women, co-ops their voices, and it's really exciting when you see an artist who's been able to break through that mold. So in this episode, which we're calling Noise, we're getting the chance to talk to a variety of women with a variety of gender identities and representations who are just rocking out on their own terms. This is a real pleasure. A lot of my favorite artists decided to join us, and it's a smorgasbord for the ears and soul. You'll hear from artists like Charlie XCX, Lizzo, Marin Alsop, the first female conductor of a major orchestra, Tina Ashe, and we'll get a special bonus episode with Camila Cabello. It's a real treat for me because I'm a crazed lunatic pop fan, and I got to harass some of my favorite up-and-coming artists. Seriously, you guys, if you looked at my iTunes, you would feel so embarrassed and any sort of, like, vague hipster cred I ever had would be ripped away from me immediately. Do you know what I listen to? I listen to, like, Candy by Mandy Moore on a loop. She's a very good actress. She's become a good actress. MailChimp, you've been angels to us this season. You've supported us as we have turned over rocks to find the mossy horrors of of the nation, but also celebrated the light, fluffy reality of cats. We love you, MailChimp. I absolutely couldn't have started Lenny without MailChimp. We couldn't have done this show without MailChimp. And uh, join me and the 14 million other people who use MailChimp to send their email newsletters. It's a fun club. All right, let's get shaken. Charlie XCX has given the world many gifts through her music. One gift in particular is being the soundtrack to a scene in Girls where I sported a green mesh tank top braless and snorted prop cocaine take after take. Yes, she has given us many gifts indeed, but you know what's better than giving gifts? Receiving them. Okay, so as an artist, I feel like one of the coolest things that happens is when you get this like extreme connection with your fans. And it also leads to awesome next level presence. Yay. Um, my fans are very, really, really sweet. They know me really well and have always given me awesome presents from like 
Justin Bieber perfume to an inflatable Justin Bieber doll to all of Britney Spears back catalogue on tape you know just amazing things pizza socks real actual edible pizza the best but one of the coolest things that they started giving me was actually well this happened basically I kept getting asked in the press like you know if you were in an all-girl band who would you pick to be in your band you know like that age-old question of what other musicians slash celebrities or whatever you would pick to be in your ultimate girl band and I kind of like always changed the answer to that question but the one thing that remained the same was the name of the girl band which was always going to be the tampon girls which people kind of were into and my fans really liked so after a while I basically just started getting like tampons thrown at me on stage luckily they weren't used thank god they were all pure and clean but I kind of just thought that was really cool and really joyous and like I always spoke about like periods being punk and stuff in like interviews and like uh was always mentioning like tampons and wanting to have my own brand of tampons with like xcx up the side and I actually didn't have to buy tampons on tour for a really long time So yeah, shout out to all the angels for uh, doing my tampon shopping for basically like a year. Yeah, love you guys. Peace. That was Charlie XCX raising the bar for best and most practical fan gifts. Also, she is the best Snapchat in the world. Get there. Next up, singer, rapper, and all-around goddess Lizzo privileges us with a look into her sensational creative brain. She's about to grace us plebes with an insider's glance at her songwriting process, so thank your lucky stars and get ready to take some notes, because a master class is in session. I stopped talking to my mama for three months, no eye contact during lunch. What nothing else around us but mountains and trees, and my guilty work that screams, what was wrong with me? was the question it was it was how could she what happened to a daddy girl when daddy don't exist no more i guess we gonna see hi my name is lizzo and i am a musician but a lot of people like to call me a female rapper <laughs> mama hiccup mama hiccup got to pick up the whole damn check plus the ticker bounces right off the dinner you looking like i say what i am the breadwinner I started writing when I was very young. I was writing short stories. I was writing fantasy novels. And then that evolved into songs from poetry. I think that it was a form of escapism. And adding music to that made it even, it made it real, even more real to me. I fell in love with music after I fell in love with writing. But those things go so hand in hand that it was undeniable that I was a beast. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> my hands are cold, my lips are tight, trying to blow. To give them warmth, it's not enough, one heart alone. A lot of my lyrics were super heady. Like, my, one of the first songs I wrote was about, like, broken households and <laughs> children of divorce. <laughs> well, my parents never got divorced, but I, I felt I, I had... I, I was like, I feel y'all, you know. So I wrote a song. It was like, broken households, children lost hope. And I remember um, (laughs) being like, I need to lighten it up a little bit. My imagination was, I couldn't keep up with it. And I think that I would be 
still writing fantasy novels and stories, but just in the songs. I would really go there. I could see it. I could see the music videos. I could see the movie. I didn't consciously sit down and say, this needs to be a world peace song, so here we go. But I definitely would feel it. I wrote songs about relationships, even though I was, like, not ever in a relationship. Like, I just, I wrote... I just, I would escape. I would write these stories. Music in general is, you enjoy it the way you enjoy it. You ingest it the way, some of it is like nutrients. Some of it is your your vegetables. Some of it is like water because you need it. But then there's pop music, which is literally candy. Once I got exposed to that candy, I was like, I could do this. I was a pop writer when I was a kid. <laughs> That's weird. I'm realizing that right now as I'm talking, but I will put like the catchiest melodies to certain lines. And I feel like my growth as a musician has been trying to complicate that and be like deeper and more indie. I'm not thinking about nobody else because <laughs> when I sit down to write a song and I start thinking about somebody else, that defeats the purpose of writing a song, right? I am a fat black woman who's very fine so I'm writing songs that sound like a fat fine black woman and it's amazing and somehow it is political (laughs) somehow but really I'm just writing music for me by me and if you feel me then it's for you too my skin the song that I wrote oh for big girl small world that's about you know racism (laughs) came through a freestyle. I was standing in the recording booth and there was a picture that the producer got from Zimbabwe or something and it was these it was these black women and they had these baskets on their head and it was a river. So I just said it was deeper than like a deep river. It was deeper than the darkest best best river. But then that turned into secrets and then I was talking about their skin. Like I like writing from God's mouth to my ears to the microphone. What's deeper than, what's deeper than the darkest, best kept secret beneath the surface we keep? Let it bring us together, or it could tear us apart. I had to play a show in New York literally when the police officer who killed Eric Garner got off. And I remember I landed in New York and we were driving to the show, and I was in the back of the cab, and my DJ was like, Are you okay? Are you all right? And I I was just so sad. Like, my head was against the window. I was just crying. I could feel New York. Like being in Minneapolis when Prince died. You can just feel a city when the city is in mourning or when the city is sad. You can feel a city when it's happy, too. They're alive. There's so many people. How could it not be? So after feeling that, when I got back home, I got in the studio. And that verse is me trying to come to terms. So I'm looking at this photo of these beautiful black women, baskets on their head. And I'm looking at the river, and I'm like, what's deeper than that river, you know? Us. We can get as deep. And I think that people don't realize that because they're so stuck with the surface. So it's like, what's deeper than, what's deeper than the darkest best kept secret beneath the surface we can let it bring us together, or it could tear us apart, yeah. I'm filled with it, got a love with no convention, though it's hard to re-envision time and time again, even when, even when, it didn't matter anymore. That verse is like, I see it, <laughs> and I'm down. And like, but it they make it so hard. And I get so tired that like, at a certain point, I just want to be over it. 
And then it goes into the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen is even bigger than what we think it means. Reflections in our bloodstreams, it's even bigger than. So it's like, but when you get over that, you realize how beautiful our differences are and you realize how beautiful it is when people actually do connect, even in sadness. And it's even bigger than the color of my skin. And then it goes into the chorus. Bigger than I woke up in this. I woke up like this in my skin. So it's like it was inspired by Beyonce being like, I woke up like this. Flawless. But I woke up in this, which kind of makes it permanent. You know what I'm saying? Like this is like I could wake up like this or I could wake up like that. I woke up in this is something that everyone can understand universally. No one is different. Oh, the white man who's voting for Trump can't look me in my eyes and say anything different. He can agree. He can say, I woke up in this. My skin, you can't take it away. You can't wash it away. My brown skin. And it's the truth. So why are you trying to wash away my blackness or my brownness or my womanhood? You love it. In my songwriting, I feel like since... 2012 I have been reinventing and also deepening how well I can express my love for myself and it's this thing that you feel like is overheard or overused or a tired idea to love yourself but it's really shockingly underutilized the idea of loving yourself is like underutilized especially with women especially with young girls because as much as we're out here screaming it from the rooftops and as much as like a woman discovers that, hopefully, you know, when they free themselves and discover their self-love, it's still so like mind-blowing when a woman is actually loving on herself. It like ruffles feathers. I've been like, how many ways can I say I love me? <laughs> Thank you to Lizzo for soothing our ears, hearts, and every fiber of my needy, needy soul. Her new EP, Coconut Oil, is out now. enjoy a variety of music, my heart will always be in the genre of girls with guitars. And I think that's because the summer between fourth and fifth grade, I was lucky enough to attend the first ever Lilith Fair. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I was there. Fiona Apple, Tracy Chapman, Sarah McLaughlin, Indigo Girls, Paula Cole. Can you imagine this freaking Avengers of women with guitars? How it happened was this. There were some girls at camp. They were super cool. They didn't like me. One called me Toddler Tummy as a nickname. And they all started talking about how they were going to be going to Lilith Fair. In a desperate bid to sound cool, I walked over and went, you guys talking about Lilith Fair? I've got tickets too. Had no idea what Lilith Fair was. Definitely didn't have tickets. Went home to my mom and was like, what is Lilith Fair and how do we get tickets? 
Bless my mom's soul, she said, I don't think lying is good, and I don't want to support you fabricating things, but I also don't want you to be humiliated at camp. So even though Lilith Fair was sold out, she managed to go to some, like, dark corner of the universe, get tickets, and my mom, my little sibling Grace, and Helen Rosakis, my mom's photography assistant, and I all headed to Lilith Fair. I wore a long Laura Ashley dress, two braids, and Birkenstocks, and bought so many churros and a Paula Cole t-shirt. My sibling, Grace, I will never forget, was wearing tiny brocade overalls, and my mom had on a giant flannel, and we brought a blanket, and I could see lesbians in the front row spinning to Paula Cole and bowing down to her and their armpit hair blowing in the breeze, and I really felt like I had made my way home. To quote Tracy Chapman, my personal hero, I felt like I could be someone, be someone, be someone, be someone. So I attended Oberlin College. It's where I met our lead producer, Jenna Weiss-Berman, who would go on to change my life by suggesting the idea for Women of the Hour and giving me a podcast, a dream I never knew I even had. Jenna, in her time, was the head of WOBC, uh, Oberlin's own radio station. She had already graduated by the time I got there, but a friend of mine, shout out to Sarah Hymanson and I, decided we were going to have our own radio show to celebrate the kind of music we cared about, and it was going to be called Vagina Music. So week after week, we played artists ranging from Nico to Deb Talon to Lisa Loeb to Sarah McLaughlin to Odetta. It was all about the music that really made you embrace the female spirit. I don't know if it was the content or the fact that like Oberlin was very into like prog rock, kind of like coming out of a strokes phase or the fact that the radio station was mostly like, you know, bros bros with headbands but still bros but we got a shockingly low number of callers and requests and almost zero listeners but to this day i have 13 crisp playlists titled vagina music 1 through 13 that make me feel so so good to this day those playlists really soothe me it was a place to really embrace your femininity and to not be made fun of much like little affair if you're interested in vagina music being revived, please tweet at me, at Lena Dunham, with the hashtag Women of the Hour, and I'll talk to Sarah Hymanson, now a successful chef, about bringing those 13 playlists straight to you. Marin Alsop is the first woman conductor of a major American orchestra. While I have a lot of experience conducting myself in a manner not befitting this establishment, according to many principals and head waiters I have known, Marin takes us into the orchestra pit and tells us what it's actually like to conduct. It's a shock that we're in 2016 and there can still be firsts for women, but I'm both proud and horrified to tell you that I'm the only woman to head a major full-time American orchestra also the only woman to head a major full-time South American orchestra. And uh, hopefully that will change very soon in the near future. Hi, I'm Marin Alsop, music director of the Baltimore Symphony and the Sao Paulo Symphony Orchestra. My parents were both professional musicians, so I grew up in a household that exuded music. I mean, even when we were sleeping, I think there was music going on. So uh, I couldn't escape the idea of being a musician, and, and that's what my parents wanted for me always. I played piano from the time I was two, believe it or not, and I retired when I was six. And then I embarked on my second career of playing the violin, which I was tricked into doing by my parents. But as it turned out, I fell in love with playing the violin. And the best part of playing the violin was getting to play in an orchestra. 
I love the sounds around me. I love being with a whole bunch of other kids. And it was going so well, but then my parents got called in by the director and um, kind of yelled at because apparently there was someone in the back of the second violins trying to lead the whole orchestra, which was me. And then shortly after that, my dad, I was about nine then, my dad took me to a young people's concert because we lived in New York and I saw this conductor come out and he was talking to the audience and he was talking to the musicians and he was jumping around and he was clearly having a great time. And so it became immediately clear to me that I had to be the conductor. So I turned to my dad and I said, uh, oh, I want to be just like that guy. It was Leonard Bernstein. And that day I decided I was going to be a conductor and I never changed my mind. I was, I think I was a little bit over nine years old. Oh, there were a lot of silly people along the way who said, you know, those ridiculous and, you know, prehistoric things like girls can't do that, including my violin teacher, which was pretty shocking. Um, yeah, when she told me that, I thought, wow, that, that really can't be possible. But, you know, I was fortunate in that I had two incredible role models and, and in my parents who believed 100% in me. There was one piece in particular that I remember hearing and becoming a turning point for me. And this was a piece, I was away at a chamber music camp when I was about 12 or 13, and I heard it through the door of uh, one of the campers was playing, um, you know, uh, an album. And I just was, it was like a magnet. It just drew me in, and I remember sitting down in the hallway and just listening outside this person's door and it was transformative because I suddenly realized the power of music to move us and change us and and speak to our core emotions when words escape us and that piece was a string sextet by Johannes Brahms. I remember the very first time that a conductor didn't show up. I was probably in my early 20s, and I was I was playing violin on a gig, and uh, my friends all knew I wanted to be conductor, and so they all said, oh, Marin can conduct, Marin can conduct. And so I stepped out of the string section and onto the podium. You know, I, I said, no, no, and then I ran to the podium. Let me do it. Um, but I remember the brass players, you know, the brass guys, I, they were saying, oh, no, it's a girl. Oh, my God, you know. And at the end of the week, the the guy who was the most vocal, um, vocally opposed to my conducting, came up to the podium. He said, hey, you know, you weren't bad. I never noticed you were a girl. And now don't think about that too much because really it's a terrible insult, but for him it was a real compliment. And I said, thank you. I appreciate that. So these things happen all the time because we live in a society that really is not aware of the inequality, the gender inequalities that exist. I think as women leaders, we have a certain obligation and responsibility, a happy obligation, to try to create a different landscape for future generations. That was Marin Alsop. You can listen to her work at marinalsop.com. This podcast is brought to you by the amazing food home delivery service, Blue Apron. 
For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. My producer Jenna and I were just talking about the importance of portioning. Do you know, I thought a serving of meat was supposed to be the size of your head, and it turns out it's supposed to be more like a deck of playing cards. So you learn something new every day. One reason to use Blue Apron is to support this show. If you're excited about the diversity of feminist voices coming at you, it's incredibly helpful for us if you support our sponsors. But there are other great reasons to use Blue Apron also, like the seafood is sourced sustainably, the beef is raised humanely, the chickens are free range, the pork is raised naturally. It's more important than ever that we think about our planet when we're making choices about what to put in our bodies. Also, did you know cooking together builds strong family bonds? Research shows that Blue Apron families cook nearly three times more often as a group. I was raised on Chinese food handed to me by a nanny. I have a lot of problems. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash women. That's blueapron.com slash women. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. When Donna Halper was an undergrad at Northeastern University, she, like so many amazing women before her, discovered that something she loved was run by a cabal of greasy male nerds. In this case, it was her college radio station. And again, like so many amazing women before her, Donna decided to crack some serious nerd's skull and infiltrate that boys club, becoming the only woman on the air. The rest, as you'll hear, is history. I didn't know why there weren't women on the air. I figured maybe they hadn't applied, so I'll apply. And I went to the college station and said, you know, I want to audition to be on the air. And they said, you can't be on the air. And I said, why not? And they said, well, you're a girl. And I'm like, and your point is? And they were like, we don't have girls on the air. I said, why don't you? And they said, well, they don't sound good. I said, well, how many have you had? And they said, none. They don't sound good. But... There I was, finally, in September, October 1968, I finally got on the radio, and I never looked back. So this nice woman called up and said there's a kind of cute little 10-year-old out there named Amy today who's having a birthday, and she doesn't have to worry about working 9 to 5. Perhaps none of us do right now, because the weekend is coming. And you're with WBET. I'm Donna, sitting in for Charlie, entertaining you this afternoon with the Beach Boys. My name is Donna Halper, and I was always different. I wanted to do the stuff the boys were doing, which got me endless criticism from people. But then I discovered radio, and my whole life changed, and I knew I wanted to be on the radio. But in the 50s, nah, unless you wanted to do a cooking show, which, you know, to, to this day, I can't picture myself doing a cooking show. But those were some of the only women that I heard on the radio. I wanted to be a DJ. When I listened to the radio, I felt like I was understood. The DJs really felt like they were talking to me. I heard songs that articulated how I was feeling. able to get hired by a small station in Cambridge, which is long gone, a station called WCAS. For music with Donna Halper. Thank you, Larry. I've enjoyed working with you this afternoon, and I'm enjoying playing music for all of you out there this afternoon on WBBT. 
Those were some of the happiest days of my life. I was teaching in the morning, and then as soon as I got done with my teaching, I would drive over to WCAS and play music, which is all I'd ever wanted to do. One day, I got a phone call. A guy by the name of John Gorman. Um, he was the program director of WMMS in Cleveland, a place I'd never thought about in my life. So there I am, and it's John Gorman. I heard you on the radio. You sound good. We need another female DJ. We have one. We'd like a second. And how would you like to come to work for WMMS? And so it was in late 1973. Sight unseen, they hired me. The universe from the rock and roll capital of the world, WMMS. There was this Canadian record promoter named Bob Roper who worked for a company called A&M of Canada. And there was this Canadian group, homegrown group from Toronto that sent him their homegrown album. It was pretty primitive, I gotta say, but he heard something. And Bob Roper sent it down to me, I believe in a manila envelope that said A&M of Canada on it. And there was a note saying basically, we're not signing these guys, but I think I hear something. And I just kinda, you know, you got a good ear for the hits. What do you think? And I dropped the needle on the longest cut which was Working Man, and I knew immediately. I just knew immediately that this was a perfect record for Cleveland. Well, I get up at seven, yeah, go to work at nine, got no time for living, yes, I'm working all the time. Cleveland was a factory town. And, you know, Republic Steel was the biggest industry. The sky was orange with pollution. A lot of people worked in those factories, and it really did feel to them like, got no time for living, yes, I'm working all the time. And I ran it downstairs to the DJ who was on the air. And uh, I said, Denny, you gotta listen to this. And he said, yeah, we gotta play this. And we did. And of course, the phones light up. When's the new Led Zeppelin album coming out? Uh, no, no, it's not Led Zeppelin. It's a Canadian band called Rush. And everybody's like, who? No, not the who. It's Rush. Just from doing something that music directors are supposed to do, I was able to help launch a career of three guys who, it turned out, would have a 41-year career, and I would get a 41-year friendship out of it, and the world would get an awful lot of great music. And that's how it happened. People don't have radio dreams anymore. When I was a kid growing up, I couldn't imagine a better life than being a DJ. But I still think radio matters. I still think it is one of the most intimate media. I still think it does touch people's lives. And I still believe we haven't heard the last of radio. Thanks to Ian Koss for producing that story. Worth noting that our own lead producer, Jenna Weiss-Berman, ran our college radio station like it was no big thing. So thank you, Donna, for making space for Jenna to be the nerd boss herself.
Tina Shea, a singer I'm so entranced with that I insisted on featuring her single All Hands on Deck for a season five girls dance number, started her career as an independent artist with complete control over her music. But as she started working with a label, she realized how her creative perspective would be challenged and oftentimes undermined. One particular trip to a Toronto studio brought all of this to harsh light. I was so excited to go to Toronto, even though it was the middle of a record cold winter. It was my first time and I'd be working with one of my favorite producers and some of my favorite local songwriters. My managers and I took a plane, a train, and then a bus to a low-key studio in a small suburb outside of Toronto. It wasn't glamorous at all, but I was so excited. We hung out for a while, listened to some beats to catch a vibe, and before too long we were feeling inspired and started working on something brand new. When the song started going in a direction theme-wise that I wasn't particularly fond of, I said, hey, maybe we can try something from a different perspective. I was never one to not voice my opinion. My notes seemed to be brushed off. Everyone else felt that the concept was genius. I wanted to be respectful, and so I thought, okay, maybe we can work on this idea for a while, and then we can create something that is more in my wheelhouse later. My A&R for my record label was there, and I, as a new artist, with no hit to my name, felt an unspoken pressure to allow everyone else in the room to take the lead. The night dragged on and on, with the song feeling more and more like something I would never say. I remember pulling my label rep aside and trying to describe how I felt. I did not want to record this song. I didn't mean to be difficult or to waste anyone's time, but I couldn't, as an artist, get behind these lyrics. That was when he turned to me and said, well then, we can just go home. At this point, I burst into tears. I felt completely defeated. I knew he saw me in that moment as ungrateful or stubborn when going home was actually the opposite of what I wanted. I also couldn't help but feel that this would never have been the reaction if some of my male peers had expressed how they felt. Why was I, as a young woman, treated more as though I had won some type of prize in being here, maybe a beauty contest or popularity contest, and not with the full respect as an artist? I brushed off the tears and reluctantly recorded the song that I hated. The End. <laughs> the studio session taught me so much. I tried very hard from that point forward to never allow myself to get in that position again, but it happened to me again on several occasions. I learned that if I couldn't trust in myself and my own opinions, I lost all of my value as an artist. I lost what makes music so magical to me, the ability to express my feelings. That is something that I will always hold on to. And as a woman, now I know I have to work 10 times harder to gain my respect. But that doesn't discourage me, because I know I will get it, and I know I deserve it. Tina Shea, you deserve the whole world, and if I could, I'd give it right to you. Make sure to keep an eye out for her album Joyride, coming soon. You know what's more fun than Weird Al Yankovic? Weird Al Gaykovic. That was a rough one, and I apologize very much for that pun. I refer here to the gay musical parodies of Edith Eide. Edith Eide was an editor and singer-songwriter performing under the name Lisa Ben. She started writing gay parodies of popular songs after moving to L.A. in 1945. Please listen, because these are a sight for sore ears. Let's see. Gonna sit right... Let's see. 
I've got to think what key I do. Oh, yeah. Gonna sit right down and write my butcher letter. And ask her, won't she please turn fem? I started writing gay parodies to popular songs. And boy, they went over, you know. So I guess I'd better write my butcher letter to turn femme for me. I'm only kidding and ask her to turn femme for me. I had just moved down to Los Angeles in 1945 after I spent two and a half miserable years being a secretary in Palo Alto. I moved down here. I knew no gay people in Palo Alto. As a matter of fact, I didn't even know the word lesbian in Palo Alto. And the way I did find out was I was sunning myself uh, up on the top of the garage of the uh, place where I had a room. And some other girls that lived in the building came up too and spread out their towels. I somehow noticed that although their talk was uh, plenty of it, they never mentioned boys' names. And I thought, well, gee, that's refreshing to here are some people talk that aren't always talking about their boyfriends and breakups and this, that, and the other. One of the girls turned to me and said, uh, are you gay? And I said, well, I try to be as happy as I can under the circumstances. But, and they all laughed, you know. Then they said, oh, no, no. And they told me what it meant. And I said, well, uh, yes, I guess I am because I don't, uh, I don't really uh, actively go out and search for boyfriends. I, I don't care for that. And so they said, well, you must come with us to a, uh, a girls' softball game. The game wasn't exciting to me. It bored the tar out of me. I mean, I just don't care for sports. I know that's very funny for a lesbian to say, but it, it's true. I never have cared for... But uh, I went along to be with the crowd, you see. And then the next thing, next uh, week or so, they took me down to a gay bar. I looked around me and, I, and tears came to my eyes, partly because of the cigarette smoke. I thought, gee, how wonderful that all these girls can be together. So uh, the girls could dance together there. So I started dancing with one or the other of them that would come over and ask me. I never asked them. I had my hair long and I wore jewelry and uh, I just didn't didn't look like a gay gal, you know. I didn't have the close cropped hair and the, the tailored attire that uh, was so prevalent in those days. And uh, I didn't do any of that jazz because I just didn't feel like it, you know. And I was darned if I'm gonna, I was going to do it just because everybody else did. I mean, I, I'm a girl and I've always been a girl. The only difference is I like girls. <laughs> Here's a song I like to sing. It's, it's not really gay, but it, it is when a girl sings it. Yellow bird, a pie and banana tree. Yellow bird, you sit all alone like me. Well, then, of course, I got invitations out to here and there, and I found out about a few more gay bars. There were two or three others in Los Angeles. 
and one of them was called the Flamingo, and they used to have Sunday afternoon dances there for just the gay kids. Uh, Beverly Shaw, the uh, well-known gay singer, used to sing there, and uh, she was a very good singer. We all enjoyed her. And then as evening wore on, why the straight people would wander in just to see how the other half lives, and the fellows would get up there on the stage and do their uh, uh, female impersonation acts. And oh, one of them got up and made a terrible remark about uh, about Beverly Shaw and her being a butch or something. But I mean, it was a a very offensive joke. All the straight people, ha, 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 at it, you know. And it burned me up. At the time, I thought, what a stupid thing for them to do, to play into the hands of these outsiders by demeaning themselves in this way. So uh, that's when I started writing gay parodies to popular songs. And I thought, well, I'm going to write some gay parodies, and they're going to be gay, but they are not going to be demeaning, and they are not going to be filthy. Hello, young lovers, whatever you are, I hope your problems are few. All you cute butchers lined up at the bar, I've had a love like you. Don't cry young lovers because I'm alone I've a stockpile of wild memories a gay senior citizen all on my own at least I can do as I please senior life has compensations my friends and at least I can do as I please You just heard Edith Ide, who was playing music until she died in her 90s just a few years ago. Hear more of her on the amazing Making Gay History podcast. (laughs) Changing your name as an artist can be a complicated process. There are albums and websites and posters showcasing your old name, and fans are hooked on your past. But for percussionist Sarah Hennies, changing her name was far more complex, emotional, and deeply necessary. My name's Sarah Hennies. I'm a percussionist and a composer. About two years ago, I started coming out slowly, but first to just sort of loved ones and then close friends and then eventually everybody uh, as trans. And then a few months later, changed my name, which I knew that I was going to do, but uh, wasn't sure when or how and just sort of played the whole thing by ear. I didn't feel like I needed to do anything transition related on any kind of like schedule or, you know, doing things all at once. And it's still something that I'm like navigating now. Over a year ago, I just stopped making like proclamations about what I wanted and who I thought I I was because it just was changing so rapidly. People's identities are always shifting. It's just more extreme when you like suddenly come out as trans as a (laughs) 34-year-old. In the record industry, changing your name is like a commercial suicide. That like if you change your name, people will just forget who you are. It was something that I had thought about 
a lot through this whole process is like the work that I was that I had made right up until I started coming out to people is still like I think really relevant and like really important work to what I'm still doing and so I don't want that to go away or to like change my name to something where it's just like not going to be immediately apparent that I'm like related to that work but at the same time I'm really uncomfortable about having those CDs out at shows because I I just don't like it. The latest solution that I've come up with that I'm okay with is that I have my new album out and it has a little sign that says if you're interested in older work ask us and we'll sell that to you too. There's something and again like I don't speak for other trans people but there's probably at least some commonalities that people's relationship with their old name is that they generally like don't want to hear it at least I don't like I don't want anyone to call me that I find it really jarring when someone does actually and so to be traveling around as a musician and have this table full of merchandise uh, with the wrong name on it is like regardless of how other people respond to it it's just very uncomfortable for me shifting into any new kind of identity that affects like how other people treat you and talk about you and talk to you is kind of, you know, it's always sort of a tightrope walk. I just wanted to be done with it because the whole coming out process is so draining. It's like a band-aid that we just kind of rip it right off. And, uh, you know, once it was over, it was over and I didn't have to do it again. And that was really like my goal. <laughs> you can find more of Sarah's music at her website, sarah-hennies.com. Paulus Van Horn produced this piece, and the music was composed by Sarah Hennies herself. When I look back on my laptop and all the songs that I'd written, I can literally see the evolution of like when I was 15, like when I wrote about having my first kiss, when I wrote about my first heartbreak and disappointment in a friendship with somebody. You know what I mean? Like, I have like a soundtrack to listen to when I'm super old. That's Camila Cabello, former member of Fifth Harmony and current cast member of my personal dream theater. Do you feel connected to that music still? Like, do you feel like you'll want to put that music into the world so that your fans will understand the journey that you've been on? There are definitely some that I still think are cool and I, and I would totally use. And if not some, then there's definitely concepts of some. Yeah, but some of those are definitely going to have to be tweets, girl, because <laughs> damn. <laughs> I was like, why don't you text me back? <laughs> you can hear the rest of that interview on our noise bonus episode coming in a few days kiss kiss bang bang this podcast was produced by pineapple street media and lenny letter specifically the all-girl gang jenna weiss berman liz watson emily becker barry finkel and gabrielle lewis kind of fun because Jenna looks like a boy and Barry has a boy name. Special thanks to Max Linsky, his son, young Guy Linsky, who brought me a very tiny cup of tea this week, age two and a half, was charmed, Ben Cooley, and Jessica Gross. Our music, as always, was by Andrew Dost. Thank you for listening. Check out my exploration of Camila Cabello and the dark side of fandom this weekend, and we're back with a full episode next week. Thank you again to Blue Apron for sponsoring us today. 
It means the world to be able to bring these women's voices to you, and Blue Apron is helping us do that. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Recently, I spread ghee from a jar on a hamburger roll, and that was my breakfast. Do you think I could use Blue Apron? Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com women. I think you're going to love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so do not delay. That's blueapron.com women. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Get moving.